as we return to this text after taking a couple of weeks off, it's perhaps wise to take a brief bird's eye view of where we are so we remember the themes that we are tracing through these chapters. Because chapters 8 and 9 of the gospel according to Matthew have a large focus on the healings of Jesus and the authority he is displaying through these healings that he is doing and these miracles that he's accomplished. Jesus is showing the world that he has authority over illnesses, over viruses, over demons, and even nature itself over just just chapter 8. And as we come into chapter 9, we're going to see him continuing to establish his authority by showing he has the authority to forgive sins, which as we'll see by the end of this passage, that's the highest claim to authority somebody could make. We'll unpack what that means in just a minute. But Let's begin our examination of the text. Verse 1 says, And getting into a boat, he he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, of course, Jesus' own city at this time was Capernaum. And just to make, I know some of you guys are real detail-oriented, so just to sort it out, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, was raised in Nazareth, but is now living in Capernaum which is uh, a town in the Galilee region. He's probably leaving with a, living with a Peter at this time. Uh, and so, hope that straightens some things out for you. So as Jesus is returning from his missions trip to the Gadarene region, uh, which we discussed about last time with uh, the two men uh, who were demon-possessed on the other side, as he comes back here, uh, he left. He left big crowds at the end when he uh, when he left for the Gadarene region, and it seems like many of them were waiting for him when he returned, uh, because in the parallel text where this this account is also listed in Mark chapter two, where in there it says many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, during the this incident that we're reading in Matthew. So you can just picture this house being completely full, bursting with people as these events unfold. And the story really begins to pick up, though, in verse 2, where it says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw whose faith? Whose faith did he see? Whose faith was he marveling at? It wasn't the paralytic. Exactly. The people who brought him. The the man's friends who brought the paralytic to him. He was marveling at their faith. You know, this is not a testimony necessarily of this man's great faith. But the testimony of his friends who faithfully brought him to Jesus. And the great lengths that they went to. It's interesting because Jesus heals people who have great faith. People who have little faith. People who have no perceptible faith. We don't hear from this man. He doesn't say a word in this passage. And he even healed a dead man in John chapter 11. 
So it's always interesting to me that people try to make your faith the secret ingredient to receiving healings from above. You'll, you'll hear this in many churches, and it's so incorrect, because the only magic ingredient, the only common denominator in all of Jesus' healings is Jesus. He, he, you can't credit Lazarus for his healing. He was dead. He contributed nothing. He was merely the recipient of God's grace that was poured out on him through that miracle. So the lesson here, pay attention to this, guys, is not, you know, have great faith and receive your healing this morning, as some charlatans do. But it's take your faith and take what your need, whatever it is, and bring it to the right person. Bring it to Jesus. That's our lesson. <laughs> we too ought to be bringing our friends to Jesus, shouldn't we? And granted, we can't physically drag somebody to Jesus anymore and physically lay them at his feet, but there are ways that we can do that in a very meaningful way. It can sometimes sound like this. Hey, I know all that you're going through so much right now. I see what you've been going through. Why don't you come to church with me this Sunday? I think you could use some encouragement. And I could use the company too. How far would that go with some of our friends and family? Especially those going through some rough times. We could all use some encouragement this season. And we're not going to get it from the news. But that being said... Even if they don't come, you can bring them to Jesus anyway just through prayer. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that when we pray, we take whatever our need is and we place it at the feet of Jesus. So when we pray for our friends and our family members, whatever situation we are going through, in a very meaningful way, we're doing exactly what these men did in this text. That ought to encourage us and remind us of the need that we have to pray. It's the best thing we can do for our loved ones. But returning to the main point, to, to our text this morning, we're given a hint of how severe this man's condition was because of how he arrived. He didn't exactly stumble his way into the door, did he? No, he had to be carried in by his friends. And we get another hint because he never speaks in this passage. It, some people have speculated perhaps he was unable to speak because the paralysis was that severe. I can't say that with authority. I'm, I'm arguing from an absence of information, but that would make sense of why we don't hear from this man at all, why he's silent when he's before Jesus. And either way, we can confirm this guy, either way, whether that last point is true or not, this is a major miracle that takes place. This is not some minor healing that takes place of some vague lower back discomfort that some people say they receive on these, from these charlatans in their healing crusades. Not to be picking on them, but they deserve it. Did I say that out loud? I meant it. <laughs> so keep in mind, this, this, is a, this is not that. This is a complete restoration from an absolutely debilitated situation. This wasn't some problem that was going to go away on its own anyway within a few weeks. 
he, this was a complete change, a complete miracle. The former thing that I kept picking on really typifies most world religions, doesn't it? That, oh, you're fine for the most part. You just need a little bit extra to be comfortable. You just need a little help arriving at your destination. But biblical Christianity paints a different picture of our condition. That we are completely broken before God, without God. Just like this man was broken physically, so we have been broken spiritually. And we needed God to revive us, to restore us. After all, Jesus didn't go to the cross for me to give me a little bit more righteousness so that I could slip under the door to get to heaven. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. He died for me because I am completely unqualified in my flesh to enter in in the first place. I needed him to completely cover my entrance fee because in a spiritual sense, I'm bankrupt. I'm not getting in on my own merits. I needed him to completely pay the cost. So when I see this man, I see a picture of where I was spiritually, completely paralyzed, completely unable to do anything of my own accord. And I needed Jesus to save me completely. And yet, as a favorite hymn of many of ours says, Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. I love that verse. And now I'm not saying that you're all 100% evil, wicked people all the time. I'm not going to push it that far. But what I am saying is that your chances of entering heaven by your own merits are equal to this man's ability to run a marathon. It's not going to happen. But as our story concludes, both are made possible because of Jesus. Thanks be to God for that truth. But that being said, the first thing Jesus addresses with this man might be surprising to us. In, in that passage in Mark chapter 2, we are informed that this is the same narrative where the friends actually had to make a hole in the ceiling and lower the man down because of all that crowding we were talking about before. And after this great length they bring to bring this man to the roof and through the roof and down at the feet of Jesus to, for what we assume is to heal him of his paralysis. After all of that, the first thing Jesus addresses is his sin. Interesting. It says in the text, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Why did he start with his sins? <laughs> Many of you guys know by now, my, uh, my wife is a nurse, and she'll sometimes tell me a story about when she had to triage a patient, which, well, what does that mean? It means basically prioritizing what needs to be handled first. You know, you don't stitch up a guy's leg if there's three things wrong with him. You don't stitch up a guy's leg if he had a heart attack. You start with the thing that's going to kill him, and then you work your way to the other things. And Jesus here, perhaps, in fact, I think, I think he very much is rightfully triaging this man. 
It's interesting that Jesus didn't start with the very reason why they brought him to Jesus in the first place. Because Jesus knows what's really wrong with this man beyond what they can see. Because the top prior- this was the top priority with Jesus, starting with his sin and dealing with that. You know, the top priority to Jesus isn't always our top priority either, is it? Maybe that's some of us this morning. Maybe you came to church this morning because you needed hope. Maybe you got an undi- a unwanted diagnosis this week for yourself or for a family member. Maybe you have a financial problem, a marital problem, or something else. And you came to church hoping that this Jesus guy had something to offer you, something to help you in your situation. And you come here and this preacher guy is telling you you need to start with your what? Your sin? That's the first thing we need to deal with? Well, yes. Because you could be completely paralyzed as this man was, perhaps not even be able to speak, and still sin is the biggest problem in your life. Because all of your other problems are temporary. Your health, your relationships, your finances, none of those things are going to last forever. But if you don't deal with your problem of sin on this side of eternity, you have an eternal problem on your hands. Our problem is we don't view sin the same way God views sin, do we? Now, too often we make the mistake of comparing our sins to each other, don't we? Saying, oh, I'm not that bad. I don't do this, that, or the other thing. Oh, I'm not such and such an other person. I'm not one of those really ungodly people. Why do we compare ourselves with each other? We need to compare ourselves to the sinless, holy, and perfect God to get a real perspective on how bad our sin really is. Because let me put this in a different way. Let's say I were to compare myself to Michael Phelps, the great American swimmer. And we were to have a race, but a special kind. We're going to race not across an Olympic-sized pool. We're going to swim across the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, he's going to start off a lot faster than me, and he's going to get a lot further than me compared to how I'm doing. Because I'm only making it a few hundred feet out there before I drown. (laughs) But he's going to get a lot further. But again, crossing the Atlantic Ocean... He's not making it to the halfway point either. He's not making it all the way across. We're both going to perish on that. Some of you are getting my point. Yeah, it looks like he's going to get a lot further, but it makes no sense judging each other because my sin might be more socially acceptable than someone else's or perhaps the other way around. I don't know. I don't know your circumstance. But we are all equally condemned by our sin, by, before, without Christ. So yes, having our sins forgiven is our greatest need, no matter what other needs you have this morning. Jesus has correctly triaged this situation. Which brings us back to our main point of this passage and what Jesus is revealing about himself in verse 3 where it says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, 
This man is blaspheming. Blasphemy? Well, where's this coming from? That's a tall accusation that he's laying out there. Well, (laughs) again, in the parallel account in Mark 2, they add not just an accusation of blasphemy, but they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Which is exactly right, by the way. Think about it. Why can't I forgive your credit card debt? Why can't I forgive your mortgage debt? Because unless I work for your bank, I don't have the authority to make those claims. It doesn't belong to me. So I can't forgive what is not mine. And that's what makes Jesus so unique. Because our debt to sin belongs to God. He holds the notes for that. And so only God can forgive sins. So track with me, guys. This is not difficult logic. If Jesus says he can forgive sins, and but only God can forgive sins, who is Jesus claiming to be? God. If he claims he can forgive sins, something only God can do, Jesus is claiming to be God right here in this passage. And I'm taking such lengths to point this out because there is this huge lie being propagated all throughout the internet and in some churches, regretfully, that say that Jesus never actually said he was God. And yet they're almost correct when they say that, yes, you will never find in Scripture him saying the words, I am God. But if he says things like this, he might as well have. And he does this all throughout the Gospels. John chapter 8, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. A clear claim to his deity. And in case anybody thinks that wasn't clear enough, what did the people do? They all picked up rocks and went to stone him for blasphemy. That's all the evidence you need. The very term son of man Jesus is about to use in our text today is a claim to deity rooted in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus wasn't hiding the ball of who he was claiming to be. He made it clear that he was God. So how does Jesus respond to this claim to blasphemy? Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Excuse me. And he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. There's so much in here. <laughs> Let's start with that question. What is easier, to, to, to say he forgives their sins or to say to a paralyzed man, rise up and walk? Well, that's a loaded question if you've ever heard one. They're both impossible for man. I can't do either of them. Can you? <laughs> But is exactly, that's exactly the point. Because Jesus is causing them to think. Because if he does this miraculous healing, it will be evidence that he has the authority, there's that word again, the authority to forgive sins too. So he's getting them to see through what this miracle would mean if he does it, which he does. And then taking a step back, to take a step forward, we see What Jesus did here, 
You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus just had to say a word to heal this man in the end. But to forgive him of his sins took a lot more than that, didn't it? He just had to say a word to restore his body. He had to go to the cross to restore his soul. So I think the answer implied is that forgiveness of sins was a lot bigger of a miracle, a lot greater of an act to accomplish that. And so by doing this miracle, he showed that he had that authority and that he was able to forgive him, that this was not a illegitimate just saying words, but proof that he had the authority to do so and the authority to forgive sins as well. It's a lot happening here. But as we draw towards our conclusion today, what was the reaction of the people to this incredible miracle? Because in verse 8, it tells us that when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They were filled with fear, my translation says. Yours might say marveled or were filled with awe. And believe it or not, those are all legitimate translations. Seems like a big stretch there, but it's true. Some of you guys were here when we discussed what the fear of the Lord actually means. It means to have a reverential awe or respect for God. Not actually, it doesn't actually mean to be terrified of God. There's a huge difference there. So when you see words like marveled or filled with awe, you know, it's, we're, we're hinting at the same thing here. So these people were amazed, they were in awe, and they glorified God. But, but why? It's just because, they had, because God had given such authority to men? Interesting. I love how honest the Bible is. Because it doesn't describe perfect people. Other than Jesus, it doesn't describe perfect people who responded perfectly to every situation. Occasionally, the disciples dropped the ball, missed the point, and it still gets recorded in the text. And I love the honesty of that because we're not, they're not pretending that these apostles and disciples were perfect and that's what we need to be too. It shows their flaws because these guys missed it here, if we're honest. By rejoicing that God gave such authority to man, it seems that they missed the point of what Jesus was describing earlier. The point of the miracle was to prove that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, something only God could do. And if they realized that that's what it meant, they wouldn't have rejoiced about what a man received. They would have rejoiced that God himself was in their midst. They missed it. So my encouragement to you guys today is, don't make the same mistake. Don't miss what they missed. See who Jesus is claiming to be and all that is implied with that amazing truth. So who is Jesus to you this morning? There's a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis, I think, worded it perfectly, though. He said that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of all creation. Now, those are some crazy claims. How, what, do, what do you mean? 
Well, some people want to make a fourth option. That Jesus was a great moral teacher. He came to show us how to live, and that's why he came. To to give us the golden rule and for us to follow that as our model. That's why Jesus came. All this other stuff about a cross, a resurrection, an empty tomb, that's just extra stuff. That's mythology. We don't need that. We just need his teachings. Well, that sounds great at the surface level, perhaps, to some, but good moral teachers don't walk around claiming to be God. You know where they put people who call themselves God? Psych hospitals. Because they're lunatics. That was C.S. Lewis's point. Not politically correct to use that language today, but that was what he said. Well, maybe Jesus didn't actually mean it. Maybe he lied about his claim to be God. Well, now you have another problem. Your your great moral teacher who we're supposed to follow all of his perfect ways was a liar. And that doesn't make sense either. So that's a problem. So even though it's probably what he is most known for today. Jesus has not given us the option to just call him a good moral teacher. That's the one option we don't have from the text. And what separates Jesus from being a liar, from being a lunatic, was the fact that this paralyzed man walks. The fact that the tomb we discussed last week is empty. Those are the things that separate Jesus from these other claims of what some people try to make him to be. He proved it. He didn't just say he was God. He did things to prove that he had this authority to these claims and to these titles that were given to him by raising the dead, by walking on water, by calming the storm, by casting out demons. I could go on all afternoon But Jesus proved it by doing what only God could do. Don't be like the crowds this morning. Don't fail to connect the dots that Jesus has given us to trace. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of all creation who laid down his life on the cross so that you could have eternal life so that you could have all of your sins, past, present, and future, forgiven by what he has done for you. So I'll ask again, who is Jesus to you? I couldn't think of a more important question for us to end on. Amen.